Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sandy Ridge this morning. Welcome to a very special time together as we are remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. The title of the message this morning is actually engraved down here on the table in front of me. Does one of you young guys up here want to tell me what it says? You can probably read it the best. What does it say? This do in remembrance of me. Who said those words? We all know, right? We sang about him, the man of sorrows. Jesus said, do this, or this do in remembrance of me. And this morning we are, we are remembering, we are commemorating. And I'd like to, uh, <clears throat> before we go into prayer, there's three Three words I want you to think about as we go through the message this morning. Three important purposes that are accomplished when we partake in communion. The first purpose is we commemorate. We remember. It's kind of like a memorial. It's something set up to bring us back to remembrance. You see that woven through Israel and God telling them to, to establish memorials and to do things. The Passover, for example as a remembrance. So first of all, one purpose is we will commemorate this morning. A second purpose is we anticipate because there's a future hope that we're looking towards. It's more than just what happens here, but, and it's more than what just happened in the past, but it points to a future reality that we uh, look forward to. And the last word is we participate. So we look back, we look forward, but then today we, we participate. And what does it mean Aside from just eating and drinking of the emblems, what does it mean for our, for our life to participate in this communion with Christ? Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for the work you did on Calvary. Thank you, Lord, for your blood that was spilled. Thank you for your broken body, Lord. Otherwise, this morning, we would have no hope. And as we come to you in worship and as we come to remember, Father, we invite you here. Our desire is that you would be present, you would be worshipped, glorified. Lord, help us to remember well what you've done. And I pray, Lord, that we could participate joyously in this this morning. In the worthy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The first purpose, we commemorate. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we often read out of for the communion passage. And here's where we get that, that phrase, this due in remembrance of me. It says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it. In remembrance of me. Uh, the passage begins, Paul wrote this, and he says that he received this of the Lord. So Jesus, I don't know if it was, which, if it was when Paul first came to Christ, we know that he had uh, a vision, he heard from God, <clears throat> I think he spoke to Jesus, but it says that he received it of the Lord, this, this event. So he has, he, uh, he has more than just an eyewitness, he has the Lord himself uh, delivering this to him. And he's referring back to that time here where Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples the night before, the night of his betrayal and his crucifixion. 
uh, Jesus had this supper up in the upper room with his disciples. And whatever all happened that night, Jesus tells them, this do in remembrance of me. And you have to remember that they were already gathered for the Passover celebration, which was happening at this time. And so as the disciples uh, had found a place, Jesus told them how to find this upper room. And they come together, and they're there. And it actually says that they were, uh, they were eating. They might be in the, in the Matthew account. They were already eating. And then Jesus breaks into the Passover celebration, and he institutes something new. It's very exciting, and it's something we still remember this morning. And so that phrase, this do in remembrance of me, um, happening at the same night of the Passover, I believe, is Jesus instituting something new. And for, I think it was probably close to 1,500 years by this time, Israel had been remembering the Passover, remembering deliverance from Egypt, and this was woven into their, into their history. And for Jews today, it still is. Those who haven't come to Christ, uh, Passover is still celebrated. But to this point, you can see the Passover was a, an annual remembrance. And even in, there were times in Israel's history where they fell away and, and the Passover was not observed. But now here, here it's being observed again, and it's that remembrance. But now Jesus, he does something different. He says, this do in remembrance of me. And we see that the early church carried that on in a different way than what had done, been done before. If you have your Bibles, turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 26. This is that scene in the upper room. I'm not going to read a lot of it just for the sake of time, but I think it's helpful to get a bit of an idea of what's happening there. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, he had sent his disciples out, and they found a man uh, who led them to this upper room. And so here we, we're going to jump in in verse 20. It says, Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, here's the phrase, as they were eating, so they're in the middle of this Passover, and you know uh, in the Passover they had, they had the, the unleavened bread, they had the bitter herbs, <clears throat> they had uh, the lamb that had to be killed. So you know the process of, of what happened in the, in the Passover observance. So as they're eating, he says, uh, jumping in here, uh, verse 26, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm going to stop there. Now, we've heard this enough times to not be um, appalled by somebody saying, This is my flesh. Eat my flesh. This is my blood. Drink my blood. Because we know what it means. But think of how that may have sounded. And it's not the first time he told this to the disciples because it actually was, at one point, a very confusing concept, I think, to those who heard it. But he says, this bread, in the middle of Passover, he says, this bread, which I'm breaking, I'm, we, he blessed it, 
He broke it. He said, this is my body. This is my flesh. This cup, this is my blood, which is going to be spilled. And notice what he says in verse 28. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so the, the blood that had been spilled to this point, the many sacrifices, the Passover, the lamb who was slain, it was, it was a continual reminder. For the, it was a continual um, thing that had to be done for the remission of sins. It never ultimately dealt with the cleansing of sin that was necessary. But Jesus says this is the cup of the New Testament or a new covenant. So the old covenant went back centuries to Abraham. And now Jesus says in this moment... My blood, as is typified in this cup, my blood is the initiation of a new covenant with you. This is a new, a new dispensation is about to begin. <clears throat> so the disciples probably began the evening uh, thinking this is just a normal Passover celebration. And they did the normal preparations. And then in this, in this time, there's also some sorrow because Jesus points out that someone among you will betray me. And they're all agonizing over this. Like, what? Me? Like, Lord, would I do that? And, and you, you know the process there. It finally comes down to Judas. And then Judas leaves. And so Judas is not part of this, this intimate celebration here. Or this new thing that Jesus is bringing about. And I can't help but think that's maybe intentional. Judas is not part of this new covenant. He never knew what it was. He didn't live long enough to, to know. Flip your Bibles now over to John. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to put it up here on the screen as well. John chapter 6, 53 to 58. This is actually when Jesus first talks about his flesh and his blood. And all of us, even all you children, you you all know the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? The little boy brings his lunch and Jesus is talking to all the people. And it's a miracle. Feeds all these people with five loaves and two fish. And, of course, if you'd have been in that crowd that morning and you'd have enjoyed a free meal and, and you'd have realized that this is probably a prophet and then you start thinking, you know what, Moses, you know, he did that in the wilderness. He had manna. And now here's our prophet and he's going to give us bread. He's going to give us fish. And, and they were really wowed by this. And, in fact, they wanted to make Jesus a king. They wanted to elevate him uh, because, finally, this, this has to be what Messiah looks like, right? And so there's kind of an excitement. So Jesus departs. And um, this is the time where the disciples go out. I believe this is when they go out on, on the lake. And um, this is actually a really long chapter. A lot happening in this chapter. But the disciples had, had, gone, had gone away. Anyway, so the next, about the next day or so, the people find him. And then this is kind of a dialogue that Jesus is having with them. So I'm going to read here in ch- chapter 6, starting in verse 53. He says, Then Jesus said unto them, this is, the, this is the crowd that's gathered around, those who want to have bread and fish, and they want to have him be their king. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. Now here Jesus is, is trying to explain to them, you have to eat of me. And this became a very hard saying. Uh, here it actually says, so he said this while he was in teaching in Capernaum. 
And so the disciples heard this, and even the crowd heard this. They said, this is hard. This is a hard saying. Who can accept? How could we, how could we eat of you? And they were offended by that. But part of the offense was, maybe not just the imagery of it, part of the offense was, they said, well, don't we know who he is? Isn't he the son of Joseph? I mean, we know this guy, and we know how that is. Jesus had said other, other times that a prophet is, is never without honor except in his home country. So there's something about, okay, we like the idea of, of, the, of the bread and the fish. Keep it coming. But then when he says, you need to partake of me because I am I'm from heaven, that's basically what he's saying. And then they become offended, and they said, oh, we, we're not sure about this. We know you. We know who you are. Jesus gives some clarity about, uh, this is to his disciples, in verse 63. I don't have it up here on the screen. He says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. So if, if you don't understand this spiritually, you cannot understand what he means to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Some of those things were hidden. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about a veil being over, over the minds of those, especially the, those who don't believe in Christ. But it's that, it's that idea that when Jesus speaks, he speaks in a mystery, but he said, this is the way of life. And it's only through the Spirit that you, you can understand this. And it's right after this moment when Jesus says, you need to eat of me, you need to drink of me, it says many people turned away from him. They forsook him. This isn't the kind of Messiah they were interested in. First of all, he speaks in strange ways, but he's saying that maybe we're not going to have free bread and fish. And it says, many turned away from him. And as the, as the crowds are leaving, I'm sure the disciples had been so excited. Finally, the movement was going, right? And this momentum, and then all of a sudden, here's Jesus saying something, and maybe they cringed a bit as disciples, but then the people start to walk away. And if you were a disciple and you see this, you're probably thinking, Jesus, you blew it. What, 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 are you, what are you doing? Why are you saying this? And so Jesus looks at his disciples yet, and he says, are you going to go away too? Is this too hard for you? Are you going to walk away from me as well because you're offended in me? And then Simon Peter, I love his, his faith. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's faith. That's faith when maybe what was said wasn't fully clear, but that was faith. But it's also a faith that's anchored in, well, it's anchored in Christ, but it's also honest and says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We'll accept these hard sayings of yours, even if we don't understand. So his disciples, uh, they stayed with him. But that's where Jesus first talked about, you have to be taking part of my flesh and my blood. We understand this morning the finished work of, of the cross. That's why we're here celebrating it today. I already mentioned the Passover. I'm not going to uh, go into that this morning. But this remembrance of the Passover, uh, this is a Jewish remembrance. Uh, the Passover goes back even prior to the, the covenant with, with Moses. The Passover was established way back in Egypt. So this was, this was a remembrance going way back. This was before the priesthood, the law, or the tabernacle. And this is still while they were still in slavery, that God um, instituted the Passover. It was, it was part of their deliverance. This morning, we take part of the bread and the juice this morning. Now, these are just emblems. There's nothing miraculous about them. But they speak to deliverance. They speak to your deliverance from bondage. That's the parallels with, with the Passover. 
Christ ultimately was the sacrificial lamb that was um, in the Passover. Of course, the lamb had to be slain, but it had to be slain repeatedly. Sacrifices annually had to be made. But Jesus comes, and once and for all, he is a sufficient sacrifice. And so I believe, I know there are people that, even Christians today, that, that have Passover celebrations at time. I don't know that that's wrong to do that, but I believe it's complete. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, and so our remembrance of the Lord's Supper is a replacement for Passover. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but it's, Passover is remembering something in the past that was waiting for something better. And Jesus was that. He came with new promises and a new covenant. And so it is a finished work. Now the second thing. So we commemorate. That's looking back. And now we anticipate, looking forward. For them it was looking back what happened. Deliverance from Egypt. Deliverance from bondage. For us we look back and we say, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. He did what he had to do. That's how we look back. Well, how do we look forward to this? Um, I already read this part of the passage here, but... The, the, in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, this just talks about a future reality. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So we're doing this waiting for, ultimately, his return. So this is an expectation. Uh, we do this until he comes. But we anticipate someday actually being with him and being with him in, in, uh, in spirit together. Also back in our passage in Matthew, I'm not going to reread this because I already did, but when he gives the bread and he drinks the cup, notice what he says right at the last here. He says, after he gives them this cup, he says, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So even when he does it the first time, he says, I'm not going to drink this ever again until there's a time way out there, somewhere. When we come together in God's kingdom... He says, I will drink it new with you. So we anticipate someday we get to do this in person with Jesus. I'm excited about that. This is great being with you all, but I'd like to do this with Jesus in the new kingdom. That's part of what we anticipate. And then the last thing I want to draw you to is in Revelation. This is a future scene. And this is the scene that John, I think John struggles to explain what he saw in his vision. If you ever read through Revelation, sometimes you almost, you can't quite wrap your mind around some of it. But, but John is attempting to write some of the things that he saw in this vision. And I even looked at his, his uh, descriptions. He says in Revelation 19, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings. Now, he's using the word voice repeatedly. I, you know, we understand the voice of a multitude. You, you hear a roar of a crowd. Like, that's already a lot of energy there if you're ever in a, in a place where there's thousands of people. So you have that, the roar of a crowd. And then he calls it the voice of many waters. So imagine the ocean and, and the sound of thundering waves. You have that. And then layer on top of that, he says, the voice of mighty thunderings. So, you know, think of the greatest thunderstorm you've been in. And you have... This, this sound that he, he can't quite describe. And what's, what's this sound all representing? It's people that are giving praise to Jesus. He says, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, 
These are the true sayings of God. So this is kind of that culmination. I've never been to a wedding where there's been cheering like that. I've heard, I've heard cheering and clapping, maybe when the bride and groom go out. But this is a, it's a scene of something that is magnificent. And it's the wedding. It's when that culmination of the bride of Christ, the church, is coming to meet the groom, Jesus. And there is great rejoicing. And so as we take part of this, there is an anticipation saying, yeah, fellowship is good. Remembering is good. But we look forward to a day when there is an amazing celebration to come. And that will be in the presence of our king, of, our, of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ himself. So that's another thing we do this morning in, in communion is we anticipate, we look forward to what is to come. I hope you do. I hope, you're, I hope your heart is bent that way. I hope your life focus, you, you yearn for that day to be in the presence of God. And John just gives us a little snapshot into heaven to show us what that's going to be like someday. It's very exciting. And the third thing I want to focus on is not the looking back, not just the looking forward, but our participation now. We participate in this together. We will in a few moments here. And a couple verses, um, the word that comes to my mind for participate is the Greek word koinonia. We've talked about that a lot here before. But koinonia, it's, it's that descriptive word that means, it means participate. It means communion. It means fellowship. It means distribution or sharing. And it's a descriptive word. I, didn't, I, I should have looked into it again, but I'm not sure if they had a word in Hebrew for this. They may have. I don't know that you see this description in the Old Testament. But when Jesus comes, there's something new, and it's the koinonia. It's the fellowship that happens in a brotherhood like ours, in the brotherhood of saints. It's the fellowship that happens and mentions it through the Holy Spirit. It's the fellowship that we have in Jesus. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And I, I put this verse up because it, it displays the Trinity. And this is, this is the last verse in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 14. It's kind of like the benediction. And he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. That's, that's the blessing that Paul would leave. You know, the, the, if you read through First and Second Corinthians, there's a lot of hard stuff said in there. Paul is really, you know, he's kind of having to take them over, rake them over the coals a little bit. But a lot of things happen in First and Second Corinthians. But his conclusion to that is, is that blessing that you find in the Trinity, the grace of Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without grace, we can't be saved. Without grace, you don't have hope. So you have grace. You have the love of God. The love who, his love was expressed in sending us, his son. And then you have this communion, which is the fellowship. It's the communion we have with the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost it mentions here. You can have ongoing communion with him. It's relationship that you have uh, through the Holy Ghost. That's one way we participate in, in Christ now. Another scripture here where he talks about this same word. God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. By whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That again mentions that same word. We are, we are given fellowship with Jesus, our Savior. We have access to him. Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of of the dead. Now here fellowship is describing entering into suffering with Christ. So he starts by the power of his resurrection. We get to have that. You get to live in resurrection power. That's why you can overcome sin. That's why you have hope for a future. So 
I love resurrection power. That's exciting. But in the same breath, he says, we also enter into the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Now, we're remembering Jesus' sufferings this morning. Uh, broken body, spilled blood. We couldn't have done that for ourselves. There's no way we could have done it. But he calls us to enter into his sufferings. And I'm not, I'm not always sure what, that, what all that may mean. It may mean different things for different people. Um, I know currently in the world, many are suffering for naming the name of Christ. Just by being identified with Christ, they suffer. Um, sometimes we suffer maybe, you know, maybe not quite so severely. But, but what is it that Christ may call you to? It's those things that we pray that God would take away out of our lives, those unpleasant things. It's those difficulties where, where God has them there for purpose, but we see them as being us entering in with him into sufferings. And probably some of you could explain or even testify to this in a better way, but he says, he follows that by saying, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the death of the dead. So we have life in Christ, but we also experience death because we are continually having to die to self, dying to our flesh, dying to our old man. So we both have the promise of life and the hope of resurrection power. We also have suffering and we have death, which makes us yearn for that eternal life that he describes there in Revelation. Hope that makes sense to you. <clears throat> it's exciting realities uh, that Christ has, has given us. I'd like to now have you uh, turn your Bibles over now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And for the remainder of the message, I'd like to just look at a little bit of Israel's history here as Paul talks about it. And this is right before he talks uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 where he, where he brings up communion. And when you see the parallels of the Christian life, um, Israel's experience in Egypt, Israel's experience of freedom, the promised land, all those things are spiritual realities today. Uh, Paul makes it clear that these things are examples for us. So in your Christian life, you can see, you can see your own life being portrayed in, in the experience of Israel. And so I want you to think of that this morning. We're not just here to talk about Israel or critique Israel or anything like that. But he gives us, he gives us this instruction here uh, for our own good. So in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to start reading in the first verse there. Moreover, brethren, I would not have, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I'm just going to stop there for a little bit. All right, so what were the blessings that Israel had as he brings them out of bondage? God takes Israel and he moves them out of bondage to Egypt. He has, they're, a, they're a set apart people, they're called for his purposes. And he starts to bring them out of bondage and to bring them into, towards the promised land. Now, he talks about all these blessings that they had. The first blessing they had, as it says here, he says they were all under the cloud. Now, the cloud was representative of God's presence. It literally was his presence. When the cloud moved, the people moved. And so there you have the ever-abiding presence of God. For anybody 
in Israel who ever questioned, well, is God with us? Just look up. There he is. The cloud's there. And then when the cloud moves, God's leading. Let's move. And so he, he says, this was a blessing to them. God gave them the cloud. And then, you know, it was, it was also fire at night. And you know how the cloud moved to protect them from Egypt when the, the host was coming. But you have that presence of God in the cloud. How about us? We have the presence of God with us, right? We see the parallels there. The second thing he mentions, he says, Israel passed through the Red Sea. They all passed through the Red Sea. So this was amazing deliverance as they come through the Red Sea. Uh, coming through the Red Sea kind of typifies the, the final movement out of Egypt, which Egypt for us is sin, right? We come out of Egypt. We come out of our old man. We come out of... Um, needing to be delivered. And so you have them coming, and as they pass through the Red Sea, and then God eventually seals the waters shut, there's a clear break from the old life. There's a clear separation from Egypt. And he says he brings them through the Red Sea, and now they come out on the other side as a delivered people, and they are permanently removed from their place of bondage. Does that make sense? It, Egypt was no longer part of their experience. There was a clear cutoff. And so he says he brought them all, all through the Red Sea. And this included many Egyptians. Uh, there was a mixed multitude, some who joined them and came. But they all experienced the blessing of deliverance and separation from the, the life of bondage. That was a blessing. The third thing he gives them. He says, it says, Israel was baptized into Moses and his leadership. Verse 2, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now Moses represents the first covenant. The, the covenant God made with Abraham, but now the new covenant with, with God's law. He hands the law to Moses, and he says, in a sense, they are baptized into Moses. It's, this passing through the Red Sea is like a baptism. And they were all initiated into a new or a, a covenant with God. God gave them his laws. He established them as his people. And so everybody got to experience that together. They were all together, and they were all brought into the faith. Now, Moses is a type of Christ. And so you compare that, this baptism, to what we experience. We are baptized through Christ. That's how we come into the faith. And that's, what, um, that's who we look to. But this is still looking at them as, as, their, uh, as their history here. And then the fourth thing he says here, Israel partook of the food and water of God's provision. Here it says they did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink. Now they also physically... It calls it spiritual here. I'm not sure if he's just alluding to that being a spiritual reality for us today. But it clearly was God's provision. God literally put manna on the ground every morning that they needed it. Uh, he provided water when there was no water. Uh, if you've, um, I think some of you have already watched the Ray Vanderland series on Israel coming out of Egypt. But I think it's in there. But when you, when you see the, the visual of the wilderness, and you think of Moses with millions, probably millions of people, and you've got no water. What in the world are you going to do? I mean, that is sure death. And yet out of a rock, water flows. And I, I don't, I think this was a big deal. Rivers flow. And so God's provision was, I, I will not forsake you. And he gives them that food. He gives them that water. And in the same way for us spiritually, uh, we recognize that he is our, he's our sustenance. We get our spiritual food and drink from him. They all drank of, here it calls it Christ. That rock was Christ. Now back then, I don't know that Christ is ever referenced in the Old Testament, but Paul clearly, he, he, he draws the picture 
that rock that provided rivers of living water in the desert. He says that rock was Christ. That's where we receive life from us, uh, for us today. But the presence of Christ is typified as being with them and deliverance coming through Christ. They had the presence with them at all times. So here's, here's the benefits, you could say, or here's the blessings that Israel received as they were being brought out and becoming a new people, the people of God. Now, let's jump back into the passage here again. It says, With many of them God was not well pleased, and most of them were overthrown in the wilderness. Most of them died, except for the younger generation. Why was that? Verse 6, Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now notice the end, what we just finished reading. So he, he, tell, he, he says, all, why talk about old history? Why go back and bring up Israel's past? And he says, these are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. I think we live in the last days. This is the final dispensation, if you call it that. And so for those who are awaiting Christ's return, be warned, beware. If God could deliver a people miraculously... And then overthrow them in the desert because of sin. He says, beware. Are we any different? Are we any less likely to turn our backs on God? I think is what the warning is. These are the sins that he mentions. This is what kept them from the promised land. The first one was the sin of lust. What did they lust after? Food. Meat. And God had given them sufficient provision. But what they lusted after was... Really, they pointed back to Egypt. They pointed back to their place of bondage and said, we wish we still had the meat we had back there. Now, I don't think they enjoyed the meat when they were in Egypt. I can't imagine. I mean, maybe it gave little bits of joy. But bondage was terrible. Bondage was horrible for them. And yet now it says they lusted after. Their desire was, God, you're not sufficient. We want what we had back here. And where God is saying, I'm giving you what you need. You have my provision. You have manna. <clears throat> and you've got to remember, God... Um, this whole thing of it, God is, is, is trying to, shall we say, create a people for himself, but it's a process. And we can shake our heads at Israel and say, boy, what hard learners they were. But he had to root Egypt out of them. He had to get Egypt out of them so that they could become a people who were set apart for God. And so you see this, this heart shift. Yeah, we're excited about deliverance, but now there's, there's looking back and saying, we want something different. God, we're not satisfied in you. They lusted, the sin of lust. A desire for something that God uh, either has forbidden or a desire outside of God's provision. A dissatisfaction with what God has given them. The second sin it mentions is the sin of idolatry. Uh, many of them, there was numerous times, at one time was when Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And it went on and on and on. And finally they became dissatisfied. And he said, well, is, is he even going to come back? And so they built an idol. They built a golden calf which was despicable to God. This was an idol of, of the Canaanites. So, God, so they would turn to idolatry. There's a, there can easily for us be a turning away from God to something else. 
Anything that takes the place of God in our lives can be an idol. And idolatry, sometimes the word idolatry, I think, maybe for me at least, I think of idols, you know, I'm like, well, that doesn't appeal to me. Well, that's not what idolatry is like for us. Some places in the world, people still bow down to idols. But for us, what is the idols? What are the idols that we turn from God and we say, I want, I want this instead. I want to have something I can see and touch and feel. I want experience. I want whatever can be an idolatry. And one of the things that happens in Israel's history, if you see on the next one here, fornication or immorality. Fornication and immorality almost always follow idolatry in Israel's history. When you have a turning away from God, why does this follow? But it does. We turn away from God, there is the fulfilling of fleshly desire. There is pursuit of of wickedness. And you see this, and it comes, for them, it was directly out of the influence of the neighboring peoples. Uh, I think the Moabites were one of them. And the people's influence on them, when you you switched or when you turned towards idols, then inevitably horrific things happened. And immorality was a big part of it. Now, on one day it says... Three and 20,000 were killed. Plague broke out. And I believe this plague, uh, this, this event had happened, I think it was after Balaam, the prophet Balaam, which you know he was, he was called on to curse Israel. But he had led, he had led them astray. And in this time, there was, there was wickedness going on. I'm not going to read the story, but right as this plague, or all this is happening, and it says some of the people came and they were weeping before the tabernacle. And here comes an Israelite man bringing this woman into camp. She may have been a Midianite woman. I forget of what, uh, where she was from. But one of the sons of Aaron grabs a spear, and it says he chased them into the tent, and he stuck a spear through both of them, killed them on the spot. And it says the moment he did that, and I'm not, that's not for us today, but it says the moment he did that, God stopped the plague, and God honored him and said, because you, you stood, basically you stood for my honor and for my name, then your generations are going to go on from here. But it took a man to say, no, we're not doing this. And standing up against this idolatry and this immorality and stopping it, where finally God had to, God stopped the plague. But imagine thousands of people dying. But it was because of them turning into this, uh, this wickedness. All because they had moved away from God into something else, idolatry, and then it moves into further, uh, further depravity from there. <clears throat> the fourth sin it mentions here, the sin of tempting Christ. Here it specifically calls it um, tempting Christ. So they were complaining. They were unhappy. And there again, uh, it says many of them were destroyed because of their tempting him. God gives provision. God gives them away. They weren't happy with it, or they disobeyed, or they, do it, or they go a different way. And God had to bring judgment. There were, many were destroyed by the destroyer, which is an angel. And the last thing I mentioned here as well was the sin of murmuring and complaining. We see this so much in the life of Israel. Murmuring and complaining. What is that? Where does murmuring and complaining come from? Think about that. When you feel the urge to complain or to murmur, what's happening in our heart when that happens? Could be dissatisfaction. Probably could be a number of things. But for them, it was no longer being grateful for what God was doing. And when you see their story, when you look back and you see the big story, there was tremendous miracles done on their behalf, major miracles. And yet they would still murmur and complain. 
uh, the story we talked about earlier about Jesus feeding the 5,000. One of the things they had the audacity to say after that event was, show us a sign. Show us a sign that you are the Son of God. It's right after that, the same people who had just enjoyed that. And in a sense, isn't that tempting Christ? How much of a sign do we need? And yet, in those cases, there were signs. There were wonders done. And yet, signs and wonders don't always guarantee faith. We can still choose to complain and to murmur. So for those who are seeking a sign or seeking something uh, miraculous like that, uh, be careful. Here he says, because of that, many of them were unable to come into the promised land. They turned their backs on him. So why bring this up at communion? I want you to notice verses 12 and 13 in this passage. So wherefore? I just got done giving you the story of Israel. In, in essence, Paul is saying, you see how they fell away. Many of them were overthrown. And look at their sin. These are the things. So he says, wherefore? Take heed. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. So for those of us who are in this age upon whom the ends of the world are come, we are expecting, we are waiting for Christ to come. He says, just, just take heed. Beware. You think you stand. You think you're solid. But just beware. And if, if you're not sure, look at history. And here's the history he lays out. If God does miracles to bring a people out of bondage and he, and he gives them everything they need and they still turn away, what about you? What's going to keep you from doing that? Just beware. And this next verse is one I learned as a teenager. And it's a verse that we often tell someone when you're struggling with temptation, memorize this verse. And there's some, there's some golden truth here. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. All right? He just said, beware. If you, think you, if you think you stand, beware lest you fall. Don't be set up. Often when we fall, it's because we've had pride in our, in our hearts. We thought we were at a better place than we were. And he says, beware of that. But notice several, several good truths here. You will never face, and you, you never have faced, and you never will face anything that is not common to man. One of the, one of the tricks of the devil when it comes to, to temptation and to bondage, is the accusation that you are the only one. You are the only one who struggles. You are the only one who faces this. And he says, everything we experience is common to man. And we even know that Jesus experienced all these things as well. He went through everything that we did. So let's not ever use the excuse that, well, it's just too hard. I can't do it. Or I'm the only one who faces these things. All right, we have, we have Christ. He was, he is our firstborn. He's the, he, he's the firstborn among brethren, it talks about him. He's our savior, he's our God. He experienced this and he overcame. And so he gives us the ability as well. So first of all, nothing you experience is unique. The second truth here, but God is faithful. That was true of Israel coming out of Egypt. God always was there and he was waiting for them to just follow him. And then they would turn away. But God is never the one. God is not the reason that they had to go through the wilderness for 40 years. Now, he made them do it, but it was because of their own choices. God was, I think God could have taken them from Egypt to the promised land in a very short time. But they made their decisions. So even as we, as we, as we struggle with temptation or these things that he talks about here in verse 13. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able 
to bear it. Nothing you face is beyond the ability for you to bear. It may feel hard, it may be crushing sometimes, but he gives us the promise, you're never gonna face anything in your life that God's gonna allow to crush you. He always will give you a way of escape or he will give you the grace to bear it or to overcome. So take that as encouragement. He says, he says look at the history, look at temptation, and look at God, a faithful God, and he's gonna carry you through. And then the last few verses as we close here. Wherefore, my beloved, dearly beloved, flee from idolatry, which we understand why he's saying that. He just got done warning them. Don't follow their path. Flee from that. Turn away from idolatry. Turn away from anything that, that wants to pull your heart away from God. You know what it is in your own life. I know what it is in my own life. That thing that always is a pull. Just, just get away from it. Do whatever you have to do to cut yourself off from that. Flee from it. I speak as to wise men. Judge ye what I say. I actually have the next few verses up here. Here's the connection. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And you see Paul reflecting almost on the story of Israel, and then he's asking the question for us. The cup of the Lord, the cup of devils. Now, in some, elsewhere he talks, I think it's further on, that somebody could have eaten meat offered to idols in good conscience until someone makes it known. Okay, this has been offered to idols, and then for their conscience sake, you wouldn't eat it. So in one hand, idols are nothing, right? In one hand, they're wood, they're stone, they're, they're nothing. And yet here he says... Yeah, Gentiles, they're offering to wood and stone. But he says it's to devils. It is to demons. So to sacrifice or to, to worship or give honor to anything besides Christ is actually to honor and to give glory to demons or to devils in this case. So there, there's a weight there in being free from idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping anything but God. And so he asked the question in the end. Can we... Well, he makes it as a statement. You cannot drink of both. You can't have the cup of the Lord and you can't have the cup of devils, meaning there cannot be a divided loyalty in our hearts. We either worship our Father, we worship His Son, Jesus, we remember His sacrifice for our sins, and we place all of our worship and affection on Him. Or, here he says, he told us to flee, but what if we keep idols? What if we keep something separate in our hearts and we think it's not going to affect me I can, I can indulge in sin a little bit and it doesn't matter it doesn't affect me he says no you cannot have the cup of, of the Lord of, this, of this, uh, this blood the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils do we provoke the Lord to jealousy are we stronger than he 
I think, references back to the people who provoked him in the wilderness. And I, I want to just encourage us this morning and, and, and bless each one of you. I believe all of us have taken the time to consider whether we are ready to come and take, partake of this this morning. I think it's right that we do consider our hearts. But let's also remember the warnings he gives us. He says these warnings for, for those of us who are in this day and in this age, remembering that, just take heed. We think we stand, but we, are, we also can fall. We also can have a heart that pulls away from God. And so my desire as we partake this morning is that every one of us with a true heart would worship the Lord, remember what he did, and give him all of our lives, give him everything that we have for his glory. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Thankful, Lord, this morning for what you have done. Thank you so much.